The Mystery of the Supernatural by Henri de Lubac, Chapter 8, A Paradox Rejected by Common Sense. For the ardent but, in fact, unfaithful Thomist, which is what Cajetan is here, reasonable nature is a closed hole within which the active capacities and tendencies are in strict correspondence. Natural desire does not extend itself beyond the faculty of nature. This is his principle, and it was to become the principle of an entire modern school. Is such a principle really, as has been said, the fruit of a more philosophically elaborate notion of human nature, a notion which would make it possible to go a step further than St. Thomas? and delineate more sharply the outlines of a nature without grace? I should say that it is rather the fruit of a more specialized idea, at once narrower and more specific. It is the effect of a reduced understanding of spirit as compared with that of St. Thomas and his time, just as it is a descent from the heights which Christian philosophy had once scaled. Cajetan's opusculum de potentia neutra, seems to me to show this most clearly, by his way of reasoning about the soul, exactly as he does about matter and every other thing. Certainly we know the major premise that no natural potency is in vain. Therefore, if we know the minor premise that in matter or in the soul or in every other thing, there is a natural potency to supernatural act, one should concede, etc. It is to this naturalization of the soul, or the human being, that we must attribute Cajetan's teaching on the potentia obedentiae. Not that it was he who invented the name, or the thing, but the application he makes of it to the problem of the supernatural end is not that made by St. Thomas. Thus one can say with Pere Martin, O.P., that he brings to the solution of that problem a completely new language. It seems that this manner of speaking is wholly alien to the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas. Someone wrote recently that it is a complete historical mistake to see this as a malicious invention on his part. In fact, no one has ever suggested that it was a malicious invention or even a pure invention at all. But there is, nonetheless, a flagrant deviation from the master in the commentator. It is quite certain that for St. Thomas, human nature can be said to be in potentia obediencia, to receive sanctifying grace, and that one may speak of it as a miracle, since, universally, every work that can be performed by God alone can be called miraculous. But it must be noted that he only admits these terms, miracle or obediential potency, potentia obedientialis, in a generic sense. In fact, as Bernard of Avernier says, every creature partakes, communicant, in obediential potency, potentia obedientiae, because God can do with everything whatever he wants. But having said this, it remains to determine all the specific differences. St. Thomas himself does this both clearly and forcefully. It certainly does not mean that human nature should be conceived, first of all, as normally endowed with a purely natural finality, and only fitted to receive a supernatural finality beyond nature, preter naturam, or against nature contra naturam, by a definite miraculous intervention. Quite the reverse. For him, as for his emulator, St. Bonaventure, it is precisely because the ultimate finality of this human nature is supernatural that it can receive sanctifying grace. There is in it not only an obediential potency, potentia obediencia, but a certain natural order, Ordo naturalis, to the receiving of that grace. Whereas in the case of miracle, such ordo naturalis 
does not exist. Indeed, St. Thomas does not even hesitate to say, so as to indicate the difference from miraculous works performed beyond the order, praeter ordinem, that the justification of the wicked is not miraculous of itself, they say, since it is not done above the natural potency, if it is admitted that the soul is naturally capable of grace. He considers it a miracle for a man to be given a certain vision of God in this world, but not a miracle in the case of the next world. He even underlines this on occasion by making it clear that the obediential potency cannot be fulfilled contrary to the natural desire or capacity of the spirit. St. Thomas also knows, of course, that created grace, the infused virtues, and the light of glory, all necessary means for obtaining the end, are not the natural products of human faculties. Many others, whether Thomists or not, know this as well, and it provides a further occasion for using the term obediential potency. Dun Scotus, for instance, does so, though he nonetheless uses in the immediate context such phrases as God, the natural end, Deus finis naturalis, natural desire, desiderium naturale, and naturally capable, naturaliter capax. In the order of finality itself, so as to avoid any confusion between the supernatural gift and the mere fulfillment a nature receives from some natural agent, we may join some of the moderns without in any way departing from the spirit of the past in specifying that the passive potentiality which characterizes human nature in relation to that supernatural gift can be called specific obediential power, potentia obedientialis specifica hominis, or passive obediential power. But it remains quite clear from the explanations he has given us that for St. Thomas particularly, the simple idea of obediential potency conceived not to express the condition in which God's gift places us of being able to become children of God, but to account for the possibility of miracle is not adequate as a definition of the relationship of human nature to the supernatural. It does not lay sufficient stress on the absolutely special case of spirit. Now, for Cajetan, the idea of obediential potency is adequate. As Toletus pointed out, Cajetan determined that the potency within us to see God is only obediential. In other words, Cajetan rejects St. Thomas's principle, the soul is naturally capable of grace. He reverses the contrast formulated by St. Thomas and reduces the case of the supernatural destiny of created spirit to a particular instance of miracle. The fundamental reason for this reversal is that he has first reduced human nature itself to a case merely of one species among others in his consideration of natural beings. And this double mistake has very grave consequences. Already, Slightly earlier than Cajetan, 1468 to 1534, Denis the Carthusian, 1402 to 1471, a more individual and modern writer than he is usually given credit for being, had expressly limited the desire of spiritual beings to the perfection which suited them according to the natural dignity, grade, order, and capacity of the species proper. Slightly intoxicated by the Neoplatonic reading provided for him in abundance by his friend Nicolas of Cusa, he had derived from it the idea that, in a hierarchical universe with many levels, every intelligence must naturally have as its last end the contemplation of the intelligence directly above itself. Man's natural end could not therefore be situated in this life at all, but must be to contemplate the lowest of the angelic natures. 
Only this end could arouse a natural desire in man, for natural desire tends to the natural end. At least in this, Denis the Carthusian was fully aware that he was out of tune with the teaching of St. Thomas and his disciple Gillis of Rome. Far from making any secret of it, he set out ex professo to refute him, disputing his arguments one by one. St. Thomas strives to prove in many ways that the natural desire of no created mind can rest or be contented except by the divine substance specifically, as if it is known. Therefore he, St. Thomas, supposed that he had to prove. Denise, we can see, knows how to adapt the traditional data to the needs of his age. He thus opened the way for Cajetan. The latter's Aristotelianism differed profoundly from the former's Neoplatonism, but both nonetheless held the same basic position as far as our subject here is concerned, and it was one which is opposed to that held by St. Thomas. Like Denise, Cajetan wanted to see in the human spirit no more than the human spirit. Like Denise, he turned that spirit back upon itself, enclosing it in its own species, in the same way as the lower natures. Such an intellect, that is, of man. Like Denise, again, therefore, he thought that if this supernatural order had not been added over and above by God, any intelligence intelligentsia, would have a natural end aside from sin instead of final beatitude. Only, instead of openly refuting St. Thomas like Denise, who is thus a trustworthy witness to the way St. Thomas was understood in the generation immediately preceding Cajetan, Cajetan now claimed to be commenting upon him. It is hardly surprising then that he should find himself as Monsignor G. Phillips remarks, in a great quandary when faced with many of the angelic doctor's statements. What is rather more surprising is that so many modern readers of Cajetan do not seem to notice the fact. Yet his commentary on the Summa Theologica bears evident traces of it. Thus he admits that to judge by St. Thomas's text, it certainly seems that there is in the soul a natural capacity for grace. Or again, that in places, the words used by St. Thomas are not without ambiguity. One may well regret that, despite that great quandary, he remained so fixed in his false principle and his false argument that he did not let himself be shaken. We also see that it is not to Jesuit theology, to Suarez or Molina, that we should attribute, as is sometimes done, the authorship of the theory that sees human nature as a closed and self-sufficient whole. Cajetan is, if not quite the first initiator of it, at least its patron and leading authority. It was chiefly he who introduced it into Thomism and, more precisely, actually into the exegesis of St. Thomas himself, thus conferring upon it a kind of usurped authority. Cajetan was followed by Coelin and Javali, who show signs of being in the same quandary as their master before them, yet they have the same strange assurance. This is not primarily a value judgment, but a statement of fact upon which it would seem that everyone ought to agree and which, in fact, is gradually coming to be accepted. The interpretation by Cajetan and his emulators, which largely determined later Thomism, is far from being wholly faithful to the text on which they are commenting. Without doubt, it falsifies the sense. For a long time, there have been good theologians and plenty to point this out. For instance, around the end of the last century, Sestili wrote, now Cajetan, though most learned and the foremost interpreter of St. Thomas, nevertheless in this matter seems patently to depart from St. Thomas, and is certainly the first to cast doubt on the question. For the rest, whether they agreed with him or not, the major theologians of the 16th century made no mistake. They speak of Cajetan far less as an exact interpreter of St. Thomas than as the leading exponent of a new line of thought. 
Soto, for instance, finds that Cajetan's gloss is tortuous and that it destroys the text of its author. Tullitus is equally severe. Not long afterwards, Gregory of Valencia, 1604, made no bones about the commentator's infidelity. Cajetan spoke out of step, minime congruenter. There followed Prudentius, Macedo, and many others. Suarez, too, is well aware that Cajetan's explanation is a modern thesis, the thesis of the Modernioris, though Suarez himself is faithful to the habitual eclecticism which made him the most deserving man of all the schools of theologians and philosophers, and he goes on to try to minimize its novelty. He is well aware that it introduces a new element in considering a certain third state, which its inventors, he tells us, describe as purely natural. A Spanish theologian, Juan Alfaro, S.J., has recently taken up the question again, having first of all determined that Cajetan's own contribution was no more than a certain extension of the traditional doctrine of the Thomas school, he is then led to conclude, after a long and painstaking historical enquiry, something quite different. Cajetan, he thinks, gives the appearance of refuting the arguments of Duns Scotus, but in reality, at the same time, broke from the position consciously defended by the Thomistic theologians. He abandons the traditional thesis of the Thomistic school during the 14th and 15th centuries regarding the innate appetite to see God. Suarez was not content merely to set out the teaching of Cajetan and the Marderniordis. Unlike Soto and Teletus, he approved of it. Like Cajetan and certain moderns, it was apparently only Don Scotus and his innate desire that he wished to attack. In effect, he yielded to the movement of his age and abandoned the whole of the old school. Like the great cardinal's commentary, the De ultimo fine hominis of the prince of Jesuit theologians declares that every appetite of nature is necessarily efficacious in its order, and therefore that such an appetite cannot extend beyond what is possible to the nature which feels it. The natural appetite is efficacious in its own order, whence it does not extend beyond what is possible to nature. Likewise, that which is not possible is not a good in the order of nature, but the appetite tends to the good. Therefore, the natural appetite tends only to what is good in the natural order. Thus, Suarez too believes this to be a first principle, an axiom, a general conception of the mind, communis animi conceptio, as Boethius puts it. For him, it is without any possible doubt one of those fundamental truths belonging to the universal patrimony of the human spirit, and he makes no more attempt to prove it than Cajetan. But he draws from it this direct consequence, which was henceforth to be so often repeated. It is repugnant that an end be supernatural with respect to pursuit, consequutio and natural with respect to appetite, since the natural appetite is found only in natural potency. Hence, if the beatitude of heaven is natural with respect to the tendency and intention of the natural appetite, it is natural with respect to any natural perfection. In speaking thus, we may say that Suarez is stressing less what properly characterizes the human soul than what it has in common with non-rational natures, or rather that he does not see sufficiently well one of the essential points that marks its special characterization. That is why, like Cajetan before him, he refers, with no attempt to justify doing so, to what Aristotle says in the De Cello of the Movement of the Stars. Nature, in giving them the inclination to a certain motion, gives them the organs for it. That this is relevant seems to him to go without saying. The vital corrections brought to Aristotelianism by St. Thomas are forgotten. 
he asks again quite candidly. All other natures are able to pursue their natural ends by means suitable to their nature. Why then is human nature of a worse condition in this? Medina reasons like Suarez, as does Bañez, who refers to Cajetan and adopts the argument drawn from the De Cello. John of St. Thomas was soon to follow, reasoning similarly, not without a certain derivativeness. He too asks how one can conceive that man could not find satisfaction in gaining a completely natural end, since all other beings, even inanimate ones, can, since, finally, it is granted to anything, even inanimate. Since then, the argument has been repeated for three centuries, never advancing, never establishing its basis. Among the theologians who adopt it, a certain number at least think and speak of themselves as strict Thomists, without seeming to notice that they are flatly contradicting St. Thomas. It would be tedious to enumerate them. I need only mention a few of the most recent, by way of example. There is Canon Gombalt, who asserts that a natural desire to see God can only envisage a wholly natural knowledge of God, which provides a natural happiness. There is Pere Garigou Lagrange, who writes, God, the author of our nature, could not give us the innate natural desire for an end to which he could not lead us, ut auctor nature. The order of agents would no longer correspond to the order of ends. One could hardly dictate terms to God with more assurance. There is Pere Ambroise Gardiel who considers that to the innate desire there necessarily corresponds in nature the effective power to realize it, an active power, making use of appropriate natural means, or at least a passive power, which requires the co-relative active power to make it actual. He takes up the induction made by Cajetan and others. There is no example of a natural appetite that is not accompanied by the active means to fulfill it. Hunger tends to food. The eye calls for light. But they also possess an organism of means which enables them to take hold of these things. But we do not see that intellectual nature has at its disposal natural energies and instruments that would be capable of taking hold of God. It is this same principle that is invoked in opposition to the view of Blondel by Pere Joseph de Tonquedec in his Du Etude sur les Pens, 1936. For him, a desire of nature is essentially proportionate to nature. It cannot go towards anything outside the possibilities, the capacities of nature. In effect, nature cannot aspire to what would burst its limitations, abolish its proper characteristics, and thus destroy it. Pere de Tonquedic considers this as evidence. However, since he wants to interpret not only the evidence but also St. Thomas, he brings in as proof a text from the De Malo about the sin of Lucifer. According to this text, Lucifer did not want to become God's equal, since such a wish would be an impossibility. Such a text, if it proves anything, proves too much, but it does not really bear on our subject at all. What St. Thomas is declaring impossible is not the natural desire to see God, but the ambition to be equal to God. The devil, he says, could not truly want to be equal to God, because the thing is metaphysically impossible. The discussion in this passage has no bearing on any kind of natural desire, but only on a conscious act of the will, on the nature of one particular disordered will, on a sin. The text is, in fact, one of those used, and justifiably so, to show that for St. Thomas, normal liberty in the form of peccability is inscribed in the very nature of spirits. Freely forming a wish to be equal to God is not desiring with natural desire to see God, 
or as St. Thomas says, naturally desiring beatitude, which consists in seeing God. He thinks this latter so far from impossible in the sense in which the former thing is, that he ends his exposition by saying, The devil sinned by striving for final beatitude, not according to due order, that is, not as it ought to be pursued, according to the grace of God. Rather than refer to a text with so little relation to the subject, it would have been preferable to examine at least some of the texts which deal directly with it, of which there are so many in St. Thomas, and which are so contrary to the so-called evidence. These few examples bring to mind a very temperate observation made half a century ago by Dr. Joseph Sestili about this very question. The doubt concerning the mind of St. Thomas arises from the fact that certain authors, out of a defect of discipline, attempt to remove what is clear by means of uncertainties rather than to explain uncertainties with clear things. And certainly, on this question, the teaching of St. Thomas is considered, habitur, to be clear and abundant in his chief works, among which are the Summa Theologica and the Summa Contra Gentilis. And still they hunt down arguments for explanation in those places where the thesis is not advanced in the same terms, or where the word appears incidentally. This truly is to remove what is clear by means of uncertainties. Quite recently, the argument appeared again, unchanged, under the pen of Pere Pedro Descoc, who gave as his major premise a principle deriving directly from the principle of sufficient reason. Desire is natural, he declares, insofar as the goal to which it aspires is proportionate to nature, in other words, possible to it. One may note, however, that Descoc makes no reference to St. Thomas, who, as we know, he hardly considers an authority. Pere Blas Romier, too, directly invokes only the authority of Suarez in the matter. And finally, we must acknowledge a similar discretion in Pere Charles Boyer. He is, in fact, well aware of what St. Thomas says so often of created spirit that does not enjoy the vision of God. It does not rest, non quiescites. Thus, he does not credit him, at least in the article I quote from here, with that principle he considers universal. A nature is an essence which rests content with the good that is proportionate to it. He merely makes clear that this seems to him not Aristotelianism, but something reason must admit. This will hardly satisfy all the disciples of St. Thomas. In any case, the discussion will remain open. It is rare, Anatole France once said, for any master to belong to the school he has founded as firmly as his disciples do. Sometimes, indeed, he is not of their school at all. Let us say once more with Etienne Gilson, the immutability and fidelity to themselves of which the schools boast are often only apparent. St. Thomas argued on this point quite differently from many of the Thomists of today and yesterday, even those who do not refer to Suarez. He never stopped attacking the false principle and the false analogy we have been looking at. He did it as explicitly as it could be done stressing on every occasion the condition at once paradoxical and privileged of created spirit. The texts I have already quoted are clear enough. There are others equally so whose object is to reject the comparison drawn from the heavenly bodies. And his teaching appears quite clear, even in those texts most inspired by a wish to be conciliatory. The nature that can attain perfect good, although it needs help from without in order to attain it, is of a more noble condition than a nature which cannot attain perfect good, but attains some imperfect good, although it need no help from without in order to attain it, as the philosopher says, De Celo 2.12. 
Thus, he is better disposed to health who can attain perfect health, albeit by means of medicine, than he who can attain but imperfect health without the help of medicine. And therefore, the rational creature, which can attain the perfect good of happiness, but needs the divine assistance for the purpose, is more perfect than the irrational creature, which is not capable of attaining this good, but attains some imperfect good by its natural powers. One may admire St. Thomas's cleverness in undermining the analogy of the stars, which attracted many people at the time, and which was later to attract Cajetan and his followers, by borrowing a principle from that same second book of the De Celo, from which the analogy actually came. Thus he manages to use the philosopher to refute him, without appearing to attack him. He quotes him, as usual, just at the moment when he diverges basically from his doctrine, and by means of an ingenious comparison, he succeeds in introducing the special case whose originality he is affirming under the guise of a general law. The greatness of scholasticism was that it calmly overturned the old formulas while making the least possible change in their elegant outward appearance. St. Thomas excelled at this. No one was better at practicing this method, proceeding from a sovereign indifference to history, which consisted not merely in saving the philosopher as far as he could, but in placing his most personal creations under his patronage, in metamorphosing the doctrine he is commenting on by filling it with new meaning in shading the differences of doctrine to bring to light a factitious harmony, to such an extent that many of those who came after him have been deceived by it. It is a summary to describe St. Thomas as an Aristotelian, as to describe the Cistercian mystic as a Ciceronian. St. Thomas bases his concept of man on solid natural foundations, which he owes in large measure to Aristotle. This is indisputable. He situates the human soul in its rightful place in the hierarchy of forms, making it a principle of unity like the other forms of nature. But his own conception of the human soul as an intellectual substance capable of subsisting without the body is a far cry from Aristotle. With his theory of the human composite, he is nonetheless also, in essentials, heir to the Augustinian doctrine of the spirit, mens. As Pere Ambrose Gardiel has recently most opportunely reminded us, though he does not indicate all that is involved in the fact. He was certainly not the prisoner of any more or less naturalist system of thought, whether Aristotelian or Neoplatonist. On this fundamental point, he spoke like the Augustinians of the previous century, who said, Only the rational creature is so made that it is not its own good, but he by whom it was made is. It is then a great dignity that no good but the highest should be sufficient for it. He speaks like the theologians of the preceding generation. The intellect is so noble that it has an action so noble and an object so noble that it be above itself. He also shows that he is in perfect agreement with the originators of the Franciscan school, whose line of thought could be summed up in the unceasingly repeated axiom, the greater the creature, the more it needs God. Quo maior creatura, eo amplius eget deo. Or, there is a greater dignity in the intellectual nature that it be ordered to a perfection greater than what it can attain by its own powers. Of course, making first of all less use of the physical analogy than did the Thomas school, these theologians were naturally less likely to fall into the comparison we have noted. But none of this applies to St. Thomas himself. He was far indeed from taking for identity or parallelism what was really only analogy really an unlikeness rather than a likeness. To the objection of the philosophers, as formulated soon afterwards by Duns Scotus, this vilifies nature, 
that it cannot pursue its perfection by its natural powers. Naturalibus. We may say that he had already given in substance the same reply as Scotus. In this, nature is more dignified. He had already shown, as Scotus does, that, in fact, it is a mark of superiority for that nature to have such a passive capacity for a perfection which no created nature could achieve by its own active causality. And, like Scotus, too, if the objection were raised of the principle from the De Celo, since nature is less deficient towards better things, minus deficiat in melioribus, he would reply firmly, what is adduced is not to the point. Illud quod aduditur non est ad propositum. Thus it is in perfect fidelity to the teaching of the leaders of both great schools, of whom Cajetan betrayed the first while appearing to make use of him to refute the second, that Soto could write of the desire for the vision of God. Cajetan says that St. Thomas is speaking of man with the knowledge of faith, but St. Thomas is speaking of man absolutely and mentions man in his natural powers, and he says of him that he has a natural desire to see God. But the argument is this. Aristotle, De Celo, 50 and 59, says that if nature had given to the stars an inclination to motion, it would have given them the potency and the instruments. Therefore, if nature has not given us the instruments by means of which we might arrive to beatitude, it is a sign that he did not give us a natural inclination toward it either. To this I answer that in this God dignifies our nature more, because he gave us the supernatural potency to pursue beatitude. And we have an equally faithful witness later in Gregory of Valencia. This is the argument of the excellence and dignity of human nature, that it is not sufficient for it unto the highest beatitude, because it could naturally and without divine assistance pursue it. With St. Thomas, as with Duns Scotus, thus summed up by Soto and Gregory of Valencia, and with the unanimous tradition of the great period of theology, which has not been wholly without exponents in recent centuries. Let us say it again. In this, man is magnified. In this, he is dignified. In this, he surpasses every creature. With all of them, and for the same fundamental reasons, we too must reject the principle and the analogy which, from their original place among the objections to be refuted, have gradually worked their way in modern times into the body of doctrine. We should not say, then, with Cajetan, as though speaking of different species within a single genus governed by the same laws, in matter or in the soul or in any other thing. We shall not agree with him in determining the laws of spirit according to the laws of the stars. We shall reply that, though Aristotle may well have been right about the stars, the analogy could not in any circumstances apply to men. We shall not be misled by an apparent induction which is really begging the question. We shall take exception to any arguments based on so deceptive a method. We shall realize, too, that by presenting his thought on the matter in the form of a commentary on the Summa, Cajetan was really as Gilson has said, producing a corruptiorum sancti tome, the most effective, alas, ever written. We shall give our support instead to those who, during recent centuries, have spoken against the analogy drawn from the De Celo, such men as the famous Cardinal Brancati de Lauria, 1612-1693, a religious one of the most learned theologians of his time. Now, potency to beatitude is not ineffectual, frustratoria, since man can pursue it by the assistance of God. Indeed, nature gave man passive and active potency toward it, but not proximate potency, nor proximate dispositions, because pure nature cannot give these. God, therefore, Operating in the natural order gave intellect to nature 
and also a will inclined to the vision and possession, fruitio, of him. He did not give it in this order the other requisites to see and possess him, but rather in another order, ever raising human nature to another state and to the number of the citizens of the heavenly commonwealth, celestis republicae. And with a view to this state, he cooperates with nature for the attainment of beatitude, bestowing the light of glory and the habit of charity, and making himself present to it in the fashion of an object, per modum objecti. And so it is clear that this inclination is not ineffectual, frustra. We are thus reminded, by way of a warning against a dangerous tendency in the other direction, of the line of thought that was common to all the great masters of scholasticism, because common to the whole of the tradition they were nourished by. The comparison fails, non est similis ratio, pronounced St. Thomas. Irrational creatures are not ordered to an end higher than that which is proportionate to their natural powers. Consequently, the comparison fails. And again, quoting and rejecting the argument drawn from the De Cello. The rational creature, which can attain the perfect good of beatitude, but needs divine assistance for the purpose, is more perfect than the irrational creature, which is not capable of attaining this good, but attains some imperfect good by its natural powers. Those who, after too cursory a reading of St. Thomas, have mistaken the objection here for the reply, and many have done this quite recently, have done so in the name of the pure Aristotelianism which St. Thomas is supposed to have professed. But their erroneous reading is the result of a more fundamental and twofold error. On the one hand, what they take for pure Aristotelianism is in fact more of a Wolfian rationalism. And on the other, which is what concerns us here, they fail to recognize the profound originality of Thomas' thought, which involves the contribution of the Christian experience of the human soul with the capacity for God, Capax Dei. I answer that it is not the same, non est simile, said St. Bonaventure similarly. The objection is that in all creatures, if they are distant from the end to which they are ordered, is given the virtue by which they may attain that end, just as is clear in fire, which, when it is down, can be carried up by its lightness. Therefore, either free will was more wretched among the other creatures, or, if other creatures naturally have the potency to come to their end, it seems far more vigorous Fortius, because in this instance man would have potency, poset, through the virtue of nature before the state of wretchedness. To this objection, that other creatures can attain the end to which they are by the virtue of their nature, I answer that it is not the same thing, for the end of the rational creature is the highest good, which is above all nature, but the end of other creatures is a created good, which is within the confines of nature, terminos naturae. Therefore, the rational creature has a greater need of the gift of grace to be able to attain its end than do other creatures. This was the teaching expounded by Judas Rigod. Any other inferior creature has the virtue of attaining that for which it is, for it is not above it, since it is pure nature, not so man. Nor for this reason was man inferior to the other creatures, for beyond that which he was by nature, he was also a rational creature. To strive for beatitude is of greater nobility than to have potency, posse, for any natural act, or to have potency to attain any natural object. Such too was the teaching of the Summa of Alexander of Hales, and such was to be that of Peter Olivi, and of Matthew of Aquasparta, who, still replying to the same objection, wrote, Nor does it detract from the nobility of nature, that it does not by its virtue have potency from this, 
Nay, rather, it is a witness to its nobility, that it is ordered to so noble an end. It was also the teaching of Duns Scotus, with his peremptory, this is not to the point. Could there be a clearer, more definite condemnation in advance of the excesses of the modern idea, so pregnant with consequences? Can anyone genuinely believe that to turn the objection into the answer was really only a way of taking the answer to the objection as far as it would go? Can such a reversal possibly be termed merely a development, a kind of nuance added to the teaching of the past? Is it not, on the contrary, quite clear that there emerges from these texts of St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure and similar texts a certain concept of man which is certainly more paradoxical? There seems no way around that word but also more harmonious and loftier than the one which later came to hold sway. The principle that human nature, and ultimately every other spiritual nature, cannot have a real desire, a true ontological desire, for any but the end which it is capable of giving itself, or which it can require as of right by forces at its own level. This principle treated by so many modern scholastics as a first principle, is simply, as Pere Guy de Broglie says, a false piece of evidence, a truth of simple common sense and complete satisfaction, says one of its protagonists, Pere Pedro Descoc, who supposes that he is thereby giving it authority. That indeed is precisely what it is, the fruit of that kind of dormant common sense which shuts the door to all truth, the fruit of that superficial common sense which rejects any paradox on the grounds of its being incoherent and a misuse of words, and the fruit of that cheap common sense which is forever watering down Christianity, but which Christianity knocks sideways whenever it is taken seriously, either in thought or in life. Whenever a theory is established and seems to give a certain satisfaction to common sense, yet pushes the human mind no further forward, then Christianity appears as the divine stimulus and by its loftiest and most inaccessible dogmas overturns the artificial balance of a stultified wisdom to set reason to work to pursue itself. Not only does it shake it up, but by the dogmas I spoke of, it provides it with a motive to return to itself, a means of reflecting upon and analyzing its own principles. It is not only rational speculation that profits in this way from that divine stimulus, which any common sense philosophy would want to avoid. Theological reflection also needs just that same stimulation if it is to remain worthy of the faith it aims to work out, to avoid the temptation towards facility and towards the constant slipping back into common sense. Furthermore, this truth of simple common sense is, as we have seen, contrary to the thought of all the great masters of scholasticism. St. Thomas, as we know, was perfectly aware of this general principle so misused by modern common sense. Natural desire cannot be unless it can naturally be had for a thing. But this makes it all the more important to note that he does not invoke it as a universal principle and that he refuses to apply it automatically to the case of created spirit in relation to its last end. It is not, therefore, to this particular Thomist principle that our truth of simple common sense leads us. Ontologically, it can better be compared, mutatis mutandis, to the principle posed as an abstraction by Karl Marx in the last century. Man, say our new theologians, our common sense theologians, only desires the end he can attain. Nature, in accordance with itself, does not have an inclination unless it is within the limits of nature. Man, says Marx similarly, never sets himself any problems he cannot resolve. St. Gregory the Great, on the other hand, said, 
If the soul were not so great, it would never put such questions. And if it were not so small, it would resolve at least the questions it puts. And St. Leo the Great, this is the vigor of great minds. Here fixed desire where it cannot cast its sight. Thus, whether with being or with knowing, there is always the same human paradox, that fundamental paradox which forces us to recognize its parallel in the Christian paradox. This is the basis of that humanism which Paul Vignon calls medieval humanism, and which we can simply call Christian humanism, though it is something far more profound than what is usually meant by the term just as the baskets of the Buddhist scriptures, according to the Mahayana, have no lids, so the human mind has no ceiling. And if it is ever to find rest and joy and fulfillment, it can only be on condition, as St. Gregory again assures us, of passing by the grace of a higher power beyond itself. To sum up, in order to gain a coherent and simple picture of our subject, the intelligence must free itself of two errors of imagination, thinking of God in the same way as man, and thinking of man in the same way as a natural being. What we may have begun by taking as essential preconditions for thought about this problem of man's supernatural end are no more than preconditions of imagination, approximations suggested by common sense, clumsy analogies, which must one by one, though in different ways, be ruthlessly criticized. Then, if the criticism appears justified, we must resolutely enter that negative phase I spoke of. We certainly shall not find a wholly satisfying position. Such positions, in regard either to basic human problems or to the essential requirements for understanding the faith, do not exist. Therefore, this can only be the start of a reflection which, though firmly based and with a definite direction, is nonetheless destined never to come to any final conclusion. The human mind is so made and it would be a lack of humility to dispute it, that, though it can criticize its own representations, once it has become aware of them, it cannot replace them so easily with others. With methodical study, it can discover just what is inadequate about those representations. Indeed, it is in this activity, this act of identifying its own weakness, that its greatness is most apparent for it is only in being judged that its weakness can be seen. But on the other hand, the intellect will never produce the perfect formula which will bring its quest to an end. To do so would be to quit its human condition. That is why it may appear to us at some moments that this kind of work of critical reflection is something negative. It seems, at the least, to be compromising by a series of over-subtle moves, the truth which we felt certain we possessed completely, though our spontaneous expression of it may admittedly have been clumsy. Beneath all the anthropomorphism and all the concepts so largely assisted by imagination, at least it contained a certain truth. It held it in tuto, are we quite certain that the truth itself is not now being brought into doubt? Such is the objection, or rather the instinctive, unreasoning fear, which any real attempt at reflection always arouses. Such, we may say, is the temptation which is always there to stop the intellect from its work. The life of the mind cannot be conceived without an element of constant seeking. As long as we live we necessarily must always seek. As with the life of the body, it cannot help giving rise to restlessness. This is so even in the firmest declaration of faith. The proclamation of every dogma is like the lifting of every seal in the apocalypse. It is a kind of unleashing of problems onto mankind. St. Thomas says of the believer, the motion of his thinking remains restless in him. And indeed, he himself gave the example of a dialectic so active, of such a wind of indefinite discussion, 
that he learnt, as it has been said, to pose as many problems as he solved. Only the activity of God is without movement, if one can express it thus. And conversely, only death is wholly restful. Our intellect therefore doubts itself. In that seeking which is always restlessness, and in that restlessness which is forever an inner dispute, it is afraid of finding itself divided within, of no longer recognizing itself, of finding itself drawn incessantly into a spiral of problems. It is afraid of inducing vertigo in itself. That there exist such uncontrolled reflections, such spiraling restlessness is only too clear. But what is not so clear is that in the present case, the fear is unfounded. For we are dealing with an understanding of faith, which must always presuppose at its base, as a first and permanent condition, the gift of faith itself. We are dealing with a search which is constantly guided by that faith. With such a guide, it cannot take a false turning. It never tries to get beyond it. Furthermore, with inborn modesty, it never seeks to possess it more securely. Faith has its own light, which can be far brighter in the intellect of a simple believer than in that of the finest theologian. The effort of understanding cannot be directed to anything but a better reflective realization of the gift of faith something not only of value in itself, but fulfilling a need in this. For both reasons, such an effort is fully justified. But, let me say again, it develops wholly within that gift, and at every stage will be measured closely against it and its results. Some people do not feel the need to make such an effort, yet they often have an equal need at the level upon which their natural thinking generally takes place, to give themselves a certain coherent view of dogma, a view more systematized than is the teaching of the church, to make the teachings more assimilable to them and prevent possible errors. In short, they have just as much need for a certain theology. Hence, there is a permanent usefulness in theories formed from concepts which belong to the common pattern of thought and which are based upon representations that are not criticized too rigorously. Denise the Carthusian characterized such theories very well by saying that they appear to include lesser difficulty and wonder, and to be effective for the satisfaction of the people. Their intellectual worth may not be great, yet to accept them, to give them a place while discerning their limitations, is not pure pragmatism, for they are useful not merely for this or that reason, but for the preservation of a truth. Though limited, their truth value is far from non-existent. Simply to reject them would result in error. At the beginning of this study, I mentioned a case in point referring to the so-called theory of scientia media. This remains a necessary support for those who need to conceive the relationship between grace and human freedom in an organized system, and who cannot otherwise manage to preserve the idea of freedom adequately. A similar example can be found in that other theory which improves on St. Anselm by creating a conflict in God's mind between justice and mercy, and there are many others. Theories of this kind, though standing on apparently firm ground, are not always without danger, though their very mediocrity protects them from any risk of rampant heterodoxy, they can, nonetheless, by producing too facile a solution, blur the paradox of faith. In any case, no study that is really scrupulous about truth, as theology should aim to be, could ever rest content with them. It is not that it wants to do away with them. On the contrary, in a backward sweep, it returns to their presuppositions, to look at them critically, and purge them of whatever is over-imaginative and still unworthy of their divine object. This does not produce any kind of mental wavering. Theology, in remaining subject to that divine object as it is authentically put before it, is never without solid roots or precise guidelines. 
It is firmly orientated. Its restlessness, according to the pattern of the human condition and the life of faith, is healthy. Nor can it, in the nature of things, ever arrive at any other theory that is final, complete, and totally satisfying, for such a termination belongs neither to earth nor heaven. The whole of tradition tells us this. It is one of the forms of the fruitfulness of the mystery that it gives birth in man's mind to a movement which can never end. To be afraid of it is a failure of faith. The believing intellect fearlessly gives itself to this work in a trusting humility, well aware that, far from ever bringing into doubt the truth of the mystery which it first recognizes and then permanently holds to, it tends only to show it more profoundly and more wonderfully, far more wonderfully and far more profoundly. Longe mirabilius, longeque secretius.